Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to Cureleaf, a medical marijuana dispensary. Whether you're a longtime patient or you're just getting acquainted with this incredible plant, Cureleaf of Pennsylvania is honored to guide you along your medical marijuana journey. Visit us soon at our new State College location. This is the Blue White Breakdown, the premier podcast for all things Penn State football. Talk about culture. It's something that should show up in every aspect of your program. It's the Blue White Breakdown, brought to you by Penn Live. Here are your hosts, Bob Flounders and David Jones. All right, it's another edition of the Blue White Breakdown. That's Bob Flounders uh, and and me, Dave Jones. Plus, we have yet another incredible special guest. I'm patting me patting myself on the back again because we have with us author, historian. All-around great guy and podcast star now, Dan Wetzel from Yahoo Sports. Dan, how are you? I am well. How are you guys? Great. Uh, just living the NIL life and uh, celebrating. Bringing me on during the hot time of the year. You know, you really bring your... <laughs> That's the idea. That's the idea. Hey, when you come on the pod at uh, the time of year when no one listens, that'd be great. Yeah, there's nothing to talk about. Sure, sure. He's also an executive producer. Don't forget, Dave. He's an executive producer. He did the Aaron Hernandez thing on Netflix. We'll get to that. But a lot, a lot of books that are just hilarious, plus of a lot of influence. I'm of the opinion, and I don't know if you've gotten this, Dan, that Death to the BCS was the first boulder down the hill that really got us to where we are. Now, you could say that's a little convoluted logic, but I believe it really was because it was the first thing that busted up the bowl system. And if you, you've never heard of Death to the BCS, when was that published? When you, when did you do it? I can't remember anymore. 2010, and then we had a second edition that came out in 2011, I think. What it, what it really exposed was just how corrupt the bowl system was. I, I was just going through some old stories on John Junker from the Fiesta Bowl, and he was a star in the book. What Dan really did was was show everybody in college football how basically ADs and coaches were being paid off to maintain the status quo and leave college football under that system. And and, you, 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 you describe the premise of the book for those who don't know, Dan. Well, uh, Josh Peter, who's the USA Today now, and and Jeff Passan, who's a baseball, uh, you know, writer and uh, ESPN guy now. Um, and I, we just set out to, the project was like, why do we really not have a playoff? Um, not because they would come up with all this stuff, you know, academics or the grandeur of the bowl games and all these just ridiculous charity. So we said, all right, let's, let's take a look. And uh, we just started from scratch and, and went through it. I remember I got a, a gift. This package showed up at my house. It was the 75th anniversary of the Sugar Bowl. They got this huge book. Remember, it was like a huge book. So I looked at this book. It showed up. It was this incredible picture book. It was retailed for like 75 bucks. So I literally sat there and said, 
some people I've never met just sent me the best gift I've got. I didn't get a gift over $50 that year, right? What the hell is going on in these bowl games? I'm not, I, I, I think I'd covered a sugar bowl, but like, how much money do you have <laughs> that you're just randomly mailing $50 gifts out to people around the country for, I don't know, what was I going to do with that thing? So I sent it back. So that, that, that was the start. We said, what is going on? So we went through everything, everything we could all the tax records, because these things are quote-unquote charities, the contracts, you got a, you know, Freedom of Information Act, half this stuff, like three different ways to find stuff. Well, out. Wait a minute, Dan, you sent yours back? I did, I sent it back. You, you see, Dan <laughs> sent his back and we kept ours, so that's all you need to know. Go ahead. I sent it back. They're probably baffled. And then I launched a, like, three-year investigation. I'm <laughs> <laughs> Really well adjusted. Um, just the things that get me. These people send me a nice gift, and I get angry and decide to investigate. What them. are you going to be like at sixty-five, Dan? Oh my That's god, yeah. I don't know. It took a lot of energy. I don't think I'll have that much energy. Anyway, when I knew we were on to stuff, all the ways that they basically rip the the teams off, right? Because they'll be like, uh, you know, you've got to bring your band. And your band has to stay at this hotel for $229 a night for three night minimum, even though you could get the room for like $123 if you just called up. And then they have to pay for tickets to a half empty stadium, including like seats for the tuba. And like basically like they just rip the schools <laughs> off. And what was crazy is I had a couple different ADs and commissioners that I'm going, working with. And I'd be like, hey, you know, explain this to me. And they were like, wait, what? Let me see that. What? Send me that thing, right? And they had no idea what the hell was going on. They didn't know. That was the amazing part of it. Yeah. Some sort of knew, but the, a lot of people did not. They're like, I'm like, why are you agreeing to this contract? This is the worst contract I've ever seen. Uh, it's just the way it is. And they get a bowl bonus, right? We, we everyone's everyone's getting a bonus. So once you got in on that and you expose that, I think it, it also changed the tide of the, the the public and the media. Because it was all the crap they would put up there, like what well, we give to charity. All they they went in front of Congress and were like, "Oh, we give twenty five percent of our money at the Alamo Bowl to charity or something like that." Well, we took a look. It's like one percent. No, you didn't give twenty five. <laughs> you didn't do anything close to that. The John Junker you talk about, John Junker was amazing, and my numbers are going to be slightly off, but. They're, they're close. Like he had four country club. Talk about a glad hander. Before you get to what he did, describe the person, John Junker, because I think that's important. Yeah, he just he was a nice guy because he was spending. He buys drinks, buys this glad handing. He just cuddled up to the college football commissioners till they just started giving him these games. And so, like, if you look at it, like if you if, if the three of us went to the NFL right now and we got in to meet Roger Goodell, and we said, hey, Roger, here's the deal. OK, I know you guys run the the AFC championship game and it's, it's probably going to be, you know, it's in new England or it's in where, wherever, wherever you have it, the top seed, Kansas city, scratch that. Here's what we want to do. We want to move it to the Alamo dome. <laughs> All your fans have to travel, but we sell them the hotel rooms. We take about 60% of the money. It's completely inconvenient for everybody, but you get the, the grandeur of, of, you know, this dome stadium that no one wants to be at. We don't want to be at arrowhead or, or Gillette. What do you think? Can we do that? Can I? How about I take over the Super Bowl too? Can I get fifty percent of the revenue from the Super Bowl? Because I don't think you guys really do a good job with that. I'll do a much better job down here in Miami. You get thrown out the window, right? You just be thrown. College football is like these are our partners. These are just tremendous. Like 
How hard is it to run a football game between Alabama and Georgia in Atlanta? But but the leverage was for the bowl system was they were their buddies. It's cronyism, cronyism to the nth degree, and guys like Junker with the two hand handshake, the, the 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 palm on the shoulder, and basically just giving out crazy steak fries, steak fries, <laughs> golf clubs, strippers, whatever was necessary. Yeah. One year is Amex bill. They averaged again. I'm going to be slightly off here. Because I can't it's remember. Like a million exactly. dollars, eight hundred thousand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He spent like it was like seventeen hundred dollars a day every day on average <laughs> on his on his corporate card. It's virtually impossible to spend seventeen hundred dollars a day. Yeah, it's like a Richard Pryor movie. You know, spend that much money, and this was ten years ago. Now with inflation, maybe you can do it. But how, <laughs> how do you spend? Like, how many meals are you buying? What are you doing? And so you go through all of that stuff. And there were so many things. It was like he threw his own birthday party. You know. Then we, we would even get into stuff like stuff we couldn't even quite print, but it'd be like, okay, when you're in this city, you have to stay at this hotel for an overpriced rate. And then it just turns out, because we get people at the hotel and stuff, and they'd be like, yeah, the guy who runs that bowl, his daughter got married here on a, you know, they had the wedding here. And you're like, yeah, there you go. Right. That bill wasn't quite all the stuff. So when the commissioners and the ADs were like, wait, what the hell is going on now? At the end of the day, they still are using these bowls. But that the biggest break is, will you ever just hold the game on campus? And and they used to act like it's impossible to hold a football game on campus. Like they talk like. Really? Like if you, if if you get this playoff going and you get a first round matchup and it's Texas is the uh you know the the 11 seed and Penn State's the 6 seed and you play that thing in State College, it's the biggest game that's ever been played there. It's a massive economic boost for the city. It's the most exciting yeah. thing to ever happen in Central Pennsylvania. It'll be unbelievable. And just like it is for the NFL. Nobody sits there and says, oh, I don't want a Steelers or Eagles home game. Let's pull that thing in Arizona. So only our richest <laughs> – I mean, it's just crazy, the concept. But this is what they do. Who would give up a Steelers home game? Nobody. At least you got it into the realm of a playoff. We did get the playoff. Yeah, it's a terrible playoff, but it's a playoff. It's a terrible playoff. But the way I look at it, when you're in that, that realm of cronyism – and what about my money? And what about my payoff? It's incremental steps. And, and we are probably one or two steps from where you intended it to be, what you showed could happen. So at least there's that. And in my mind, that book also was the first pebble in the landslide that led to autonomy because of the power five. Do you, you, you agree with that or disagree with that? Or is that a stretch? Indirectly. I don't know. I don't know. You'd have to explain that one. I, I think it was just really like, I think it allowed people to question a little bit more. Like, why are we just doing what we always did? And and college football was like an underperforming business proposition. But I think more like, you know, the things that have really hurt or, or have impacted college football, it's like conference expansion. Like that to me was the biggest change of the game that's come along because you've had rivalries, the, 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 the idea of what's a conference has changed dramatically, things like that. I, I, I really felt the couple, those kind of land grabs were more detrimental or more impactful than almost anything else. 
what do you what were you doing in 1989 when the Penn State uh, uh, move to the Big Ten was initially announced, and then in ni- the June of 1990 when it was voted on? I was younger. I was like in high school. Or you were in yeah. Michigan, someplace. Uh, I was in Boston. Yeah, I remember that being a big deal, but that was one team. That wasn't like I'm now rating your conference. Yeah, but I think it, I think it led to that. Florida State was very soon after, and that almost didn't go through. That almost didn't go through. If Donna Shalala does not orchestrate the sixth and seventh votes, then Penn State would have been in the ACC, and God knows what we'd have. As long as we're here, get into NIL and what you always said is like that. This is basically the way college football has always been. It's just over the table. It's over the table instead of under the table. Yeah, there's going to be more money. But this isn't going to ruin college football. There's still this hue and cry that NIL is going to ruin the game, and I do not get it. I think it's great, and I just think it's a different way of funneling the money. It's a different way of funneling it instead of its direct deposit, instead of uh, going into uh, mood-lit smoothie bars, you know, and, and facilities that are going to do no good. So, so give us your views on that. Yeah, I, I think in two ways. The dollars are the same. Either they were under the table payments, and some programs don't want to do that or do it more aggressively than others, but it's certainly hamstrung programs. I cer- certainly think Penn State would be one that you know lost any number of recruits because they just weren't going to do that uh, at the same level. I'm not going to give anyone a pure you know bill of goods here, but I don't think Penn State was out there cheating for recruits quite the way maybe someone else and then the the money that just was being spent on facilities right that was everything was facilities and staff so we need a bigger locker room we need a bigger weight room we need a a bigger recruiting lounge we need you know now you got all these like it's all about instagram studios and and you know waterfalls clemson's got a mini golf course and a slide at their at their football facility i mean like (laughs) So the money is going in, and I would rather that money go to the player's family, you know, who who's going to use it. And, and I, I don't know any player that would say, do you want your – put this – any worker, okay? You have a job, whoever's listening, wherever you work. You work at a store, you work at a factory, you work at an office, whatever. And someone says, hey, we're going to remodel the office, or we're going to give you guys all a 5% raise. <laughs> <laughs> No one says, I hope I get the most cutting edge office and hope my office is better than our competitors. Oh, no, you want the money. Everyone wants the money. So that that alone, will it change recruiting? I think it's, first off, right now, five programs sign like 70% of the top 100 players. Georgia, Alabama, Ohio State, you know, uh, sometimes it's LSU or whatever. Like when you get into it, it's it, it, this will even it out. Right now, Louisville has three top 100 recruits committed in class of 2023. Two are from California, one's from Texas. They're not getting those guys if, you know, whatever they're doing, I don't know. But if they can't sit there and say, hey, we have a collective that's going to guarantee you this or come to Louisville and you can make this much money because we have a fan base that's ready to go. If it's about how big's my stadium or how big is my locker room, they have to take years and years and years to use passive dollars to try to catch up to Texas and Texas A&M. But if they can go right in and say, we got more money for you, it, that's how that's how the world works. Why would you switch jobs? Why do 90% of people, if they switch a job, more money? Not these other things. So I think the talent will spread out. You look, Notre Dame's killing it. I think we would all say Notre Dame's an unlikely school that through the years was cheating with payouts. Well, if they can now pay a little bit, 
Look at how many kids are going to Notre Dame. I think it's going to be Any, good Anyone with donor collectives who gets serious and channel and concentrate, they're going to they're gonna make out. You could, you could see uh, – I don't know what kind of money that certain alumni associations have, but you could see that entering into it. Who knows? Somebody like Arizona, who has always had crappy facilities – if they're if they're paying big money to these players, maybe maybe Pac-12 schools start start getting into it. I don't know. Stanford alumni. How much money's Penn State got? I never 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 struck me as poor. There's more money at Penn State, more alums, wealthier, bigger endowment, more everything than some school in the South. Yeah. This is the Blue White Breakdown. Welcome to Cureleaf, a medical marijuana dispensary. Whether you're a longtime patient or you're just getting acquainted with this incredible plant, Cureleaf of Pennsylvania is honored to guide you along your medical marijuana journey. Have questions? Visit us at cureleaf.com or stop in to see us at any of our locations, including our new state college dispensary located at 1248 South Atherton Street. Let's talk medical marijuana and let our confidence become yours. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Dan, for the good of the Big Ten, and I know you have some Big Ten roots, what do you think should come next? Divisional realignment or no divisions at all with, a, with an eye towards getting maybe the best teams positioned for the playoffs and all that good stuff? What would you like to see? Super tricky. Um, obviously, the divisions are just an artificial construct and don't really make a lot of sense. And you get a very boring Big Ten title game most of the time, right? You know, Michigan, Iowa last year, Ohio State, Northwestern. Northwestern kind of held off Ohio State a little bit. That was kind of a weird year. If we're ranking the programs, four of the top five, if not four of the top four are in the East. Ideally, no division. I don't think they should have a division. You do have that fear of last year you would have had this great moment of Michigan, Ohio State, and then the next week you get to play again. Um, now, that can happen. Well, that really can't happen because you're always playing kind of in your division. I think, you know, but – so there's a little risk there, but then again, how often is that going down? So I would say no division, but it would that would suck because that that was like a great Big Ten game, and Michigan, you know, Michigan is so excited they finally beat Ohio State, they get past Ohio State, and then if they had this, and I, I think that's what maybe Iowa would have made it anyway. I don't know, but if all of a sudden you're like, okay, cool, you beat us this week up in uh, Ann Arbor, but now we play again in Indy, that's kind of the risk you have. Yeah, one more for you, Dan. Uh, going into this year, what does your top five ranking look like for Big Ten coaches? Because I think there's a once you get past Ohio State, I think the next four can go in a lot of different directions, um, depending on how you look at the coach and what and if he's doing uh, he's doing more with less and all that good stuff. What, what would your top five look like? I, and, you know, I'm curious to think to see what you think about James, frankly. Top five Big Ten coaches. Yeah, so you get this bit where it's like, all right, you got to put like Pat Fitzgerald, you know, in the top like two or something like that. <laughs> Almost, right? Just historically, 
he totally maxes it out. Then again, like recruiting is part of is is major part of the job. Because what Urban Meyer showed to the Big Ten is it's not about coaching them up; it's going to get them. And that's when Ohio State's program went from reachable, competitive. Other teams could be competitive to get out of the way. We're we're way better than all of you. <laughs> uh, and that was Urban Meyer bringing an SEC mindset. Who do you think does the best job? I guess is another way of phrasing it. Well, I may say I think Franklin's doing doing pretty well. Obviously, it's been a little bit disappointing, but I do think he brings a pretty good mix of recruiting and coaching to the table. I'm not down on on James Franklin at all. I mean, I think it's just a hard question a little bit. What do you do with Harbaugh? His recruiting isn't really all that great, but they just wins it. Ryan Day's doing pretty well, but are they slipping or not, right? Like, can they do 10-2 and two again? And you sit there and say, all right, there's a problem here. They could also go 12-0 and 0 this year. Uh, obviously, Kirk Ferentz and, like I said, uh, uh, Fitzgerald, you know, super solid. Uh, Scott Frost, not so good. Um, <laughs> you know, I think, obviously, Penn State, especially now that Michigan has broken through, I'm sure – Penn State fans have the right to expect that they can break through and and win one, and there's no reason that they shouldn't be able to. So if at that standard, no, he hasn't gotten it done. But I, I, it's been pretty good. It's been pretty good. No Mel Tucker mentioned there. I'm surprised. I'm surprised. That's one year. That's <laughs> Book odds on Urban Meyer's next school, and I'm I'm of the opinion he has not poisoned himself in the world of college football. What's toxic enough to poison you in the world of college football? I just don't buy it. I think somebody's going to bite. Who's it going to be? I think there's, I think there's parameters here. I think, I think uh, something like Arizona state. That's right. Yeah. I would, I would have said Arizona, Arizona state. I don't think he can get the big dog program. First off, SC's taken, you know, like I, I don't think Notre, you know, Notre Dame wouldn't want him. Does he come back into the Big Ten? Like, what does he take, Penn State or Michigan? But he's, but he's not going to be – he's not going to slum it like Charlie Weiss at Kansas. He's just not going to do that. Not going to do Kansas, but he's not going to just take a – he's not going to do Steve Spurrier either where it's like, I'll take South Carolina and I'll get us to Atlanta. Or like, he's not going back into the SEC to get beaten up there. Like Auburn, like Auburn could open this year, right? That's a great program. They've won national championships this, this century. But – He's not taking that. So I could see yeah. him just switching totally up and saying, I'm going out here and trying something totally new. And Arizona State's always been a uh, – everyone's always looked around Arizona State and said, what the hell? Why does this not work? Right, right. And that's the way I feel about it. Maybe Colorado. I don't think he'll get it. I don't think I – I, he may be too toxic. I don't think I don't think there's any such thing in college football. I don't think there's any such thing. He also would have to coach in a different time. It's a totally different era. Like – I don't know. Although he get into the NIL, he probably, you know, he just wants players. How did you get involved in the Aaron, the Aaron Hernandez project, the killer inside? How did, how did that come about? Well, I covered the story from, you know, the moment of uh, Odin Lloyd getting murdered and uh, Hernandez becoming a suspect. So from the start, I covered the story. I progression of, uh, everything I covered both uh, of his trials, uh, one for Odin Lloyd and one for Daniel De Abreu and uh, Safira Furtado up in Boston. You know, I, I was on top of it. And Kevin Armstrong, who writes for the uh, used to write for the New York Daily News, is now at the Newark uh, Star Ledger, NJ.com. 
he and I were looking for ways to kind of tell the whole story, you know, whether it's a book or a, or a documentary or something like that. And we just kind of, you know, we got worked with some production companies, um, Blackfin mainly out of New York and yeah, it was a long process, but finally got it, got it up on Netflix, but crazy story. Right. I mean, you, sometimes you're just working a story that's so enormous that you're just like, this is like it's too much to write one column, describe it. And the longer you were on it, the, the more you know that other people don't know. Oh, absolutely. We want to write a book. We could never get a book publisher. It was kind of weird. Well, this is better, isn't it? It is better, but I still, there, there was more stuff that we wanted to do, but we could have sold a gazillion books attached to a Netflix doc, <laughs> but we did not. But you like, you know, the Sandusky story, right? It's so enormous. Yeah. If you go to all the tentacles of the Sandusky story, and all the different ways you let's just just not even taking a side as I know it gets there are sides right but if you just tried to cover that entire thing that's a that and it's been a documentaries and it's been it's so enormous it's like this isn't a one or two stories and I don't think anyone's done it completely because there's five or six different threads that you could attack there's legitimately a, you could do an eight part series easy on Sandusky because there are so many threads. <laughs> And people don't want to look into like, well, what's this impact? Or what if we question this? Like, well, if you really open it up, there's all sorts of angles and stuff on Sandusky. It would be like the wire with different perspectives. Yes, there's a whole bunch of different perspectives on, on Sandusky. It's not as neat and tidy as, uh, as, as everyone wants to make it be. And Penn State fans know that. When I, di- I did something on Art, Art Howe and how he was smeared in his portrayal of Moneyball, which is a movie I really like, but that's why it was seductive. And I called you up specifically because I knew what happened to Glory Road, which was a really good book you wrote on Don Haskins and the Texas Western team and what he did. It was a terrific book, and then it became Disneyfied. And that's what you do when you sign off on a movie. What happened? Because I think it's a really interesting story, and I couldn't use much of it in, in what I wrote. When they gave you know, Haskins and all the players on that 66 Texas Western team, the first team with uh, all uh, African-American starters, um, you know, they sign their life rights to Disney and you give them the rights to tell the story the way they want to tell the story. And uh, I've worked enough in Hollywood that like accuracy is just. uh, It's an impediment. It's something that's there sort of inspired by a true story (laughs) based on a true story. They'll just take incredible liberties. One of them in that one was if, you know, to, to be kind of be a little unusual or I, I don't even know how to describe it. But like Haskins team was extremely disciplined and would walk the ball up and played. Ex- he was a very conservative coach. He co- played for Henry Iba at Oklahoma A&M. They'd win games like 38, 37, you know, like this was defense first, two guys back on D, everything. And the Kentucky team was the uh, running running runs or running rups, what they call them? Running runs, I think. They were small, but they're up-tempo. They led the station in scoring. They were dunking. Pat Riley, they're running the ball. So the stereotype would be the all-white team is the slap-the-floor, all-defense team, and the African-American team is playing Showtime Lakers. And it's the exact opposite. And so they kind of struggled with that. It's things like that, and they just, you know, some of the passes. It's all little stuff, right? It's a movie, though, like Haskins – Haskins would get all upset. I would never have let Bobby Joe Hill throw a behind the back half court <laughs> pass on. Like, 
I'm like, you know, it's a movie, man. Like, it's got to be entertaining. The way you guys play basketball is freaking horrible. But but also what you told me is that he was playing five black starters from the beginning of the season because they were the best players. They were the best players. They're going to invent girlfriends and all these conflicts. But the big one was he played five African-American stars the whole season. And in the movie, they make it more dramatic that the night before the title game, they have a meeting and he has a meeting with the team to discuss his starting lineup, which, (laughs) you know, come on, right? No, not, not happening in 1966, but he started, he said the whole year, he said, oh, these are my best five. I'm starting these guys all, all year. But in the movie, he succumbs to the pressure and won't play five until the end. And then he just basically says, screw it. I'm doing what's best for the team which is a great movie moment, right? Yeah, because you're a dramatic crescendo, but it's not true. It's not true. It's not true. And for Don Haskins, it was very hurtful because he said, you made me out to be a coward for the previous four months. Like I'm listening to these racists saying, you got to play a white guy. Hell no, I didn't. And that was very bothersome to him. And you can understand that. Now, unlike the Art Howe thing, who never gets the payoff, my thing's like, dude, anyone walking out of this movie thinks you're the hero. But in his thing, it's like, and it's like, this is how movies are made. These sports movies are, are what they are, right? They're just, they're, it's a good story, but it isn't, isn't accurate. Always but whenever you hear based on a true story, it can be total bullshit. <laughs> it's not That's true. Yeah. yeah. Based yeah. on a true story is, is whatever, right? And I can't let you go without mentioning Run and Rebel. <laughs> you're autobiography of Jerry Tarkanian, which is, can I get a copy of that? Can I, is it completely out of print or what? Because it's like one of the greatest books that you said, I believe you said nobody ever read. And it's incredible. It's an incredible book. Yeah. Cool. Classic. You can find one, read it. (laughs) No, it really is. It's, it's, it's a great book. So somebody brought it up to me about a year ago. And I reread a bunch of it, and I was laughing so hard. And so, oh, it's one story after another. Yeah, yeah but the whole book is. I just said, "What is it like if you could have dinner with Jerry Tarkanian and just say, tell me your your hundred best stories?'" And it just goes from one to the next to the next. Yeah, it's not a lot of narrative or plot arc. You know, it's just sort of like next recruit. Yeah, totally insane recruiting stories from Jerry Tarkanian. And um, oh, I'm telling one the one about Frank Sinatra trying to recruit a couple of players. Yeah, all right. I'll tell you this. I'll tell maybe I'll tell two. But I'll tell this one. So he's got Frank. He's out in Vegas, and uh, Tark's coaching in Vegas, and Frank Sinatra is out there doing shows at whatever uh, casino. And so he Frank becomes a fan of the team, and he says, and Tark's always thinking of like recruiting angles. One of the reasons he would he would get in trouble with the NCA, but then not is they didn't have the rule written <laughs> that he was about to violate. Right. The spirit of the rule was getting annihilated, but it wasn't actually written. And this would be an example of that. So Frank Sinatra says, hey, Jerry, anything I could ever do to help the program, you know, you let me know and I'll do it. And I think Frank probably figured nobody ever take ever actually asked Frank Sinatra for for a thing. And if like it's a young if you're younger than the Frank Sinatra crowd, like this is like, I don't know, asking Jay-Z or so, I don't mean, the biggest star in the world. Right. She says, well, actually, Frank, so he gets to thinking and he calls Frank up and says, actually, we're recruiting a kid named Michael Korn from Jersey City or, uh, yeah, from Jersey City, New Jersey. His mother's Italian. And I'm supposed to go in on a recruiting visit to meet with him like next week. 
But instead, what I'd like to have do is just tell them I'm coming. But when they open the door, it's you. <laughs> <laughs> I forgot that part. All right. right. That's, that's, yeah. So Frank is like, I actually got to be back in New York anyway. Let's do it. So story goes, this is Tark, Tark telling the stories. Okay. So, you know, we did some fact checking, but whatever. <laughs> Print it. Right. And Frank had this bodyguard named uh, Gilly who they said was so loyal that when Frank died, Gilly volunteered to get buried for him. That's how loyal uh, Frank was. And you can only imagine. So Frank's and, and Tark's like, look, you're, you're a big star with the Italians and f- you're from Hoboken, New Jersey, right next to Jersey city. This is going to be great. You, and he's thinking Frank goes in, beats the mom, sings a couple songs, tells him to sign with his buddy, Jerry out in Vegas. And we're getting Michael Korn. So sure enough, door opens Frank Sinatra at the door. Um, family's blown away. What the hell is, what the hell? So he comes in, tells a couple stories, sings a couple songs, tells him to go sign with uh, UNLV. And uh, he leaves, says, calls him. So how do they, he goes, it's good. I think you got him. He's going to, he's going to come to UNLV. Two days later, he signs with North Carolina. Michael Corn goes to North Carolina. Tark is upset that his plan didn't work. And he's upset he lost the recruit. He gets very angry when he loses recruits. So he's all upset. And the next year they're in the final four and who do they play? But, North Carolina and freshman Mike Corn scores like 32 points on UNLV in this game or something. He just absolutely destroys them in this game. And at one point, as Tark was standing on the bench and he just turns around and punches the, the, his seat, says that effing Frank Sinatra, he sure can sing, but he can't recruit for shit. <laughs> <laughs> so they had to come up with a rule. This is, you can't send celebrities in to home visits, right? So again, like it's like it's not cheating because you hadn't thought. No one thought. Well, we need to have a rule to stop Frank Sinatra from going out on recruiting visits, right? I'll give you one more. You got time for one more? This is my favorite Tark story of all time. A same same concept, right? Just hadn't really thought of everything through. So he's recruiting a guy named Clifford Lee. There's a kid named Clifford Lee. He's a seven footer from L.A. And he could run and all this stuff. Everyone is after Clifford Lee, Kentucky and Kansas, UCLA, everything. UNLV's in there recruiting. They, 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 you know, he likes me, but he's probably going to go one of these bigger schools. And then Clifford Lee gets caught uh, stealing something and gets put into juvenile detention. Uh, the El Camino de Robles Juvenile Detention Center in Los Angeles. So he's a high school senior. So everyone backs off, right? Because he's now, you know, a uh, felon tends to hurt the recruiting process, uh, but not for Jerry Tarkanian. Uh, just a good kid, just a little mistake, just a little mistake, right? Second chances. So he goes and visits, has a home visit with Clifford Lee in the, uh, maybe it's El Paso de Robles, I can't remember, whatever. He goes to the juvie and like through the glass, like with the phones, he's like talking to Clifford. Hey, you want to, you know, when you get out of here, you want to come to UNLV? He's like, oh, you last guy recruiting me. Yeah, absolutely, right? They get him the scholarship paper, signs, signs inside the, the detention center. So he's going to get his GED, get out, show up at campus, and Tark's got this seven-footer that everyone in the world wants. And it's, this, is, this is great. This, this theft charge is a, is a positive, right? So he's uh, sitting out at, in Vegas, and they get a new, new president at UNLV uh, comes in. And obviously, UNLV, particularly back in whenever this was, early 80s, 70, not the, you know, this is not the Harvard of the West. They're, they're basically a commuter school in, in Vegas. And uh, the president of the school says, all right, you know what we're going to do? We're going to try to get some better students in here. So 
Uh, it doesn't matter where you go to high school. You go in Vegas, go in L.A., go in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, whatever high school you graduate from. If you are the valedictorian of your high school class, you get a full ride to UNLV. Maybe somebody will get a couple kids who, you know, some smart kids in here will do it. So free, free ride. I'm thinking of the welcome fellow scholars uh, sign uh, at the at the final four for the Duke kids. Yeah, yeah. So Tark sees this in the paper and he says, "Man, this is great, guys!" Like telling the assistants, "Like if we could get a valedictorian, then it's like an extra player. He's not on he's on academic scholarship, free ride, and we could then have like 14 players instead of 13. We get another dude." And and one of the assistants goes, "You know, Tark, man." We, ain't exactly recruiting valedictorians around here. What do you, this is the UNLV running Rebels. And then someone says, yeah, maybe Cliff Lee can be the valedictorian. And Tark goes, wait, is that possible? So he goes, we could make Clifford Lee the valedictorian of the Juvenile Detention Center GED program. <laughs> oh, the bad boys. <laughs> you know, Paso de Robles Juvenile Detention Center. The bad boys. Um, this is Mike Tyson. We will make him the. We'll make him the valedictorian. Everyone's laughing. There's no such thing. Send assistant coach down to the the detention center. Meets the guy who, you know, waits outside for the guy who comes runs the GED pro. Say, can we make Cliff Lee the valedictorian of the GED? We don't have valedictorians. Here's five hundred bucks. He's the valedictorian, right? <laughs> <laughs> Sign this paper. <laughs> Cliff Lee, valedictorian of a GED program. So they bring it back to campus. Now, even at UNLV, there is some skepticism on this academic scholarship. So admissions is uh, pushing back a little bit on the, we're going to give a free ride to this kid. So they have a hearing schedule. And Tark is going to make the argument that this is a legitimate uh, valedictorian, just like any, you said, any high school, this is a, uh, so I said, all right, so how'd the hearing go? He goes, oh, well, Cliff got out, and then he boosted a car back in L.A. and got sent back <laughs> But he's still a valedictorian. He uh, did get his GED because of the old running rebels. So uh, Dan Wetzel uh, listened to him every week on, a, you know, one of the best, if not the best podcasts in the country with Pat Forty, College Football Inquirer. Dan Thanks a ton. This I think this is our longest show, wasn't it, Bob? But it was worth it, right? Definitely worth it for the Tarkanian stories, for sure. Can't beat it. And there's more where those came from. All right. Take it easy, Take it easy Dan. Thanks a lot. This has been the Blue White Breakdown, brought to you by Live.